How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. Welcome back, everybody, today. uh, I'm here. So is our new mic, which I'm using right now. So hopefully if you guys hear some better audio quality, that's what it's coming from. We finally got it. It came in the package a few days ago. And uh, we've been trying it out, and uh, this is the first full episode that we'll be doing with our new mics. So hopefully a little bit better quality with our audio for you guys. And then uh, Ian's... uh, Although my quality is probably still not going to be great. Yeah, because Corona stuff, uh, Ian's still doing the the FaceTime with us. So he's on that end. And uh, you say hello, Ian. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in. We yep. got a pretty good uh, podcast for you today. Yes, it should be intriguing. See, I, I stopped myself there. <laughs> uh, this episode will be about Shakespeare, Bacon, and the Rosicrucians and how they're all connected. So, I hope you guys enjoy this episode today. Uh, but before we get begin, I'd like to remind you guys that uh, check the Facebook page for information on the podcast. And then uh, ask questions and stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. Uh, we got, I think, 54 or 55 people following that page now and liking that page. So uh, we thank you for the support that it's already been receiving. That's that's awesome. It's slowly but surely growing. So I'm glad to see that. And then, yeah, and, uh, we're also going to start uh, sending out more, uh, more, more different types of podcasts. We're doing uh, bloopers and... Just more entertaining stuff, you know, try and cast a appeal to a bigger audience. Yeah, if you guys caught that Blibbers episode the other day, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And that's just some of the some of the fun mistakes that we've made along the way. It's uh it's good to know your mistakes so you can improve. And there you go. That was some of our some of our best mistakes. And then uh, don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on Anchor, the awesome podcast server we use to make all of these episodes possible. Um, we're getting money from Anchor itself now through uh, through sponsorships. But if you guys are willing and if you guys like the podcast enough, please go on there and feel free to donate to us. Uh, anything you use really helps and it allows us to get better equipment like we have our, have our new mic. And uh, it really just it gives us what we need to make more of these episodes that you guys enjoy. So in the end, we'll, uh, we'll give some more shout outs like usual to some of you guys who have already liked the Facebook page. And we thank you for the growth that it's already been experiencing. It's been pretty good. Yeah, so uh, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Yep, today we're going to be talking about an Elizabethan conspiracy. And uh, this concerns Shakespeare, Sir Francis Bacon, and other notable authors, and the Rosicrucians as well. Um, this is a very interesting, yes, I know, and uh, an interesting topic and a mystery that still has yet to be solved. And I think you guys are really going to find this episode intriguing today. So let's hop right into it. All right, everybody, before we get into the topic today, we need to fill you in on some background. Yeah, so in order to understand what we're going to talk about today, you really need to first realize the person of Shakespeare himself and uh, the Elizabethan era that he became the best poet and author of. And uh, his several playwrights and uh, 
how he profoundly impacted really modern literature as we know it. Because really, honestly, no school children has completed their education without reading at least one of his great works. And uh, actually, we read one of his works this year in uh, or last year now in our uh, in our senior class for uh, it was Hamlet. We read Hamlet. You remember that? Yeah, I remember that. I also remember uh, Romeo and Juliet in uh, 10th grade, our sophomore year, I believe. Or... Yeah. yeah, yeah, I remember reading that too. That was a good one. Uh, post your comments on your favorite uh, Shakespearean player, uh, right? Yeah, go ahead and share that on the Facebook page. So, pretty much, however, however, what if Shakespeare, as we know him, was actually just a grand conspiracy cooked up by several very notable people who had a hidden agenda to spread their secret knowledge of an ancient order, and they did so by hiding their authorship and the symbolism in the first folio. Well, this is just a theory that we're going to talk about today, and it has been formed over several years of historical research in the codes discovered particularly by a man known as Peter Amundsen. And if this idea is proven true, the whole story of Elizabethan-era England, and even the man of Shakespeare himself, would forever change rewriting history as we know it. So this would be a profoundly impacting thing if it were proven true, because Shakespeare, as we know him, wouldn't be who who we've always read him being. It would it would really rewrite history as we know it. Yeah, because uh, is it even Shakespeare at all? Yeah, exactly. What if it's not even Shakespeare, but instead a group of men who are dedicated to hiding something? So the most famous author of the millennia isn't even writing his own works. Most famous author of history, pretty much. There's not much. Yeah. There's not many authors who, who hold up to Shakespeare. Yeah, no one outshines Shakespeare himself. I don't think I know anyone who doesn't know the name Shakespeare. Yeah, it's very few, if there are. All right, so pretty much today we're going to dissect several key characters and even the mystical society of the Rosicrucians themselves. Uh, this is because they may have even played a part in this grand conspiracy. So as many uh, as many people know, as and as with any great theory or mystery, there's always a basis in fact. And there's actual events that happened where people that we know existed. So this will be the factual origins and the detail of these people and the Rosicrucian order and how they play a part in this great conspiracy behind the true authorship of Shakespeare. So the main uh, authors behind this theory we're going to be talking about are Sir Francis Bacon, Ben Johnson, and Henry Neville. Yeah, three... And we'll uh, get into their backgrounds uh, in a bit. Uh, what are you guessing what we're saying? Yeah, and these three men were very notable for their time as well. They uh, they held their ground. Uh, Shakespeare, we as we know him, became probably the most famous author in history, but for their time, these three men as well were very high up there they were very established in their own rights so it would prove intriguing if uh they played a part in this conspiracy somehow yeah they were very influential in uh politics in in uh london and uh england uh, yeah they uh were they're not necessarily founding fathers but in a way they they did uh influence a lot of the government in uh, england today yeah so let's start with Sir Francis Bacon and who he was. 
So talking about these authors who were very notable for their time, uh, Sir Francis Bacon was really up there among those people. He uh, was known for his work on the King James Bible. He actually became uh, one of the Rosicrucian leaders, as we'll talk about later. And uh, his writing was uh, very advanced, and uh, it, it really stood up there with uh, the works that were published during the Elizabethan era and really during that that time period in general. And I would argue uh, some of his writing still plays an important role today because uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later. I think we're going to try to decide to do a Freemasons episode, but even the King James Bible is used in uh, Masonic lodges all throughout the world. So I'm going to give the reins over to Ian and uh, he'll explain some more stuff about Sir Francis Bacon. Yeah, thank you. Um, a lot of people know the name Sir Francis Bacon, but... Uh, we're going to give you a bit uh, more general understanding of his life and where he grew up and what his life was like. So Sir Francis Bacon was an Englishman born on January 22nd in 1561 in New in York House. Also known as Lord Verum, he was a legendary English philosopher and statesman who served as Attorney General and Lord Chancellor of England. He had written many works in his lifetime and is credited with developing the scientific method remaining influential throughout the scientific revolution. Yeah, really, the scientific method during this time would prove more than important to uh, modern science as we know it. And uh, particularly uh, Bacon's work with uh, science and uh, the scientific method and all the experiments that he performed, uh, they were very uh, they were very experimental. Which, And what I mean by that is uh, they were based almost on Rosicrucian ideology. So uh, pretty much how science developed through the ages is that we know it really started out with uh, experiments with uh, stuff like alchemy. Those uh, those good old children's stories of you that you hear about, uh, or at least I did, about uh, turning lead into gold and stuff like that, and uh, that's really what science started out as. But uh, Francis Bacon, we would really start pioneering that into what it was and what it, well what it is today. Yeah, and arguably his most uh, influential accomplishment, the scientific method. Obviously, it's developed as time went on, but he's really the founding father of the scientific method. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, Francis Bacon began attending Trinity April 15th. Well, he completed his course of study in Tr Trinity in December 1575, and the following year, he enrolled in a law program at Honorable Society of Gray's Inn, the school his brother Anthony had also attended. Okay, so he really had that background there with the. Uh... He had his university education. Not many people during their time actually had that. Uh, and, and even surprisingly enough, uh, Shakespeare didn't even have that. Shakespeare was known as a very self-educated man. So Bacon actually had his universal education. Yeah, and um, I see that was a lot more lenient back then, where he was enrolled at the age of 12. Yeah. You, know, you, don't, see, you don't see anyone getting a college degree at the age of 12. And if you do, they're a child prodigy, so. Yeah, they're, they're a prodigy of the highest order. That's, that's amazing that he really started it back then. But uh, I'm assuming that also the lifespan was a little bit shorter, so that might have an important part to play with it as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's a different time back then. Uh, a year after he enrolled at Gray's Inn, Bacon left school to work under Sir Amias Paulette, the British ambassador to France. During his mission to Paris, two and a half years later, he was forced to abandon the mission prematurely and return to England when his father died unexpectedly. His meager inheritance left him broke. Uh, Bacon turned to his uncle, Lord Burgley, for help finding a well-paid post as a government official. But Bacon's uncle shot him down. Oh, like yeah, a so shot bang bang or 
uh, no, no, he, he, he denied. <laughs> the fans were saying he denied him uh, financial aid. So Bacon yeah, was yeah. left on his own. He had no family member supporting him financially, so he was basically denied all um, financial aid. So, so this he had really... to find a different way to, to survive. So this really shows him as a, a self-made man. He really, because family issues, he really, he really developed what he would become later in life. Uh, he really did that all by himself. Yeah, he grew up to, uh, in a wealthy family, but unfortunately, his family did not not help him out as much as you think. But fortunately for Bacon, in 1581, he landed a job as a member of Cornwall in the House of Commons. Bacon was able, was also able to return to Gray's Inn and complete his education by 1582. He was appointed the position of an outer barrister. Bacon's political career took a big leap forward in 1584 when he composed a letter of advice to Queen Elizabeth, his very first political memorandum. So this was really where his political career began to take off. So Yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, after that, Bacon held his place in Parliament for nearly four decades, from 1584 to 1617. Wow. Yeah. So during which he, time he was extremely active in politics, law, and the royal court. That's a that's a decent term there. That's a that's a good amount of time that I actually spent in Parliament. He uh, he was able able to hold himself pretty well with uh, the political strife and sphere back then. Yeah, he he was really climbing the ranks there. Uh, he was making connections with Queen Elizabeth and uh, later in life King James. Yep, King James is where I found it really interesting. Yes. Uh, Bacon often wrote for the court, specifically writing for Queen Elizabeth, such as letters and speeches. And uh, the year, sorry, <clears throat> he actually wrote for the for the queen or for the queen herself. That's uh, that's yeah. that shows. I'm I'm guessing him actually uh, with some of this bigger stuff that he actually ended up doing in life. That's I I see that as definitely one of those things that he that really made his name. That's that's amazing. Yeah, this is like I was saying. He really climbed the ranks in these four these four decades. He became like the queen's right hand man, writing letters and uh, yeah, letters of parliament, and just really climbing the ranks. It's a good job. Yeah. Uh, by the year fifteen ninety seven, Bacon published his first collection of essays about politics. Uh, the collection was later expanded and republished in 1612 and 1625. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, yeah, he wrote about his experiences in politics, and he wrote about uh, all the all the laws he set in order. He helped to get placed through uh, Congress. Oh, so he even became an influencer pretty much by the early 1600s. Yeah, that's see, that's how you know that you you've you've really climbed the ladder if you're able to share the experiences that you have had with other people. That shows your shows your knowledge in the area. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I've, what I found interesting is that he was able to, he was able to really influence the, the, the political. The, <laughs> sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, it's good. But yeah, like we were saying, he's, he, it's really good that he was able to, to, to talk about his, uh, To talk about his uh, experiences talk about his career, in yeah. yeah. Sorry, I just had to break apart. That's all right. <laughs> uh, 
his writings expanded from science to politics and to history and mythology, varying in topics and growing his writing career. There's that mythology. That's uh, I'm assuming that has some good Rosicrucian connections there. Uh, for this one, uh, Ian was actually pretty good with the author stuff, and then I was really good with the Rosicrucian stuff. So that's kind of where our our spheres met on this episode. Yeah, and uh, this is this is yeah, that's what, like you're saying. This is really where he begins to make his connections with the Rosicrucians. Mm -hmm. And uh, his writing career really exploded during this time as well as he was also doing politics. In uh, 1603, Bacon was knighted upon James, uh, James, King James' ascension to the British throne. Yeah, most importantly, Bacon was very close with, the king, with King James and the monarch would take full advantage of all Bacon's assets and give him the task of writing the letter of dedication because this Bible was to be read in every church and be in every household. And uh, from what I know, actually, uh, with Bacon's work on the, on the King James Bible, because uh, this is where I saw the, the interesting Rosicrucian connecting, connection is uh, actually some of the people who uh, subscribe to the theory that we're going to talk about a little bit later, they believe that uh, Sir Francis Bacon may have actually hid some secret codes within the King James Bible. And uh, he became uh, very influential with, uh, with the writing of what became and what really still is one of the most common and uh, most provocative editions of the Bible as we know it today. Yeah, definitely. And uh, most notably, Bingham was one of the main Rosicrucian leaders at the time and may have even been written uh, one of their manuscripts known as the Fama Fraternitis. Yes, the Fama Fraternitis. So uh, the, this is, again, one of the Rosicrucian connections, and uh, that's really where uh, where my sphere came in, was uh, the Fama Fraternitis was actually the second produced manuscript of the, the Rosicrucians. And uh, if Bacon wrote it, it would be really interesting because the Fama Fraternitis is really a... Uh, an explanation of the Confessio, which is the, the first Rosicrucian mani manifesto, as I call him. And uh, the Confessio was uh, really explained the life of uh, Father R.C. Or, or Father Rose Croy, which uh, the order is named from. So the fact that if he wrote the Fama Fraternitas, it would show that he really had those strong connections with the Rosicrucians, and he actually knew some of the inside secrets within the society itself. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, uh, 20 years, uh, pr uh, 20 years uh, following uh his writing of the Fama for not for for uh, Bacon was performing a, a series of experiments with ice, and while uh, testing the effects of cold on the preservation and decay of meat, uh, he was he shoved a hen with snow <laughs> in England, and he caught a chill, and unfortunately <laughs> his immune system could not fight off the disease, and uh, he died. Of all the ways that you could die, you die from experimenting with ice on a chicken. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yes. That's a really interesting way to die. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because they didn't have anything to treat it. And essentially, he died from the common cold. Oh, okay. So, what we could treat today with ease, what we could fight off today with ease, he could not. Yeah, and that uh, that provides a good connection to our uh, our pandemics episode that we did a while back with uh, 
smallpox and how the Native Americans weren't able to fight it off. But because the Europeans had the technology and they had the genetics to to the point where they were pretty much immune to it, it, it didn't bother them at all. So that's another thing. That's how science has developed over time. Like some of the stuff that is treatable today was uh, critical and terminal back then. So. They didn't have any like antibiotics or any cold medicine, nothing to stop the symptoms. And you just couldn't fight it off. All right. So that's Sir Francis Bacon in a nutshell, right? Yeah, it is. And uh, our next author who also had a huge role in this theory, uh, Ben Johnson. Yeah. So let's jump into Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson should be pretty interesting as well. All right. So getting into Ben Johnson. This was another notable author from his time. And uh, actually, he ended up working for Shakespeare. So uh, this would prove interesting. And uh, really, I think it's quite confusing then for the theory. Because if Shakespeare is not a real person, then who did Ben Johnson work for? But before we get into all that, first we got to understand really who Ben Johnson is. And uh, this is where Ian really becomes the expert, like I said earlier. Because he actually did a whole year-long project, senior year, on Ben Johnson. So if he doesn't get it right... Some shame there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Ben Johnson, like you were saying, he did work. Uh, he did work alongside Shakespeare and uh, under him, with him. Uh, Shakespeare even worked maybe for him, and uh, he was the director of the place. Uh, but like you, as you were saying, you were saying you go so far as to say maybe Shakespeare wasn't even real. But uh, a lot of sources. Uh, show real real connections there with uh, Ben Johnson and Shakespeare, but as the theory goes, maybe not all of it's one hundred percent accurate. Yeah, Ben Johnson alone would throw a uh, would throw a fork in the path of this theory that people have made. But uh, getting right into it, uh, Ben Johnson was born on June eleventh, fifteen seventy two, in Westminster, London. Uh, he was an author and playwright who favored the genre of satirical comedy and drama. His books included Valpone, Timber, On My First Sonnet, The Alchemist, and many more. Yeah, The Alchemist uh, was the one that I really saw as what could possibly be the the Rosicrucian connection. Because even look at just the name, The Alchemist. Come on, that's what uh, that's what Rosicrucians. Uh, that's what one of their teachings was really about was hermetic al was hermetic alchemy, based off the the teachings of uh, Hermes Trismegistus. Yeah, exactly. And his uh, his connection with the Rosicrucian uh, shows in all of his in a lot of his plays, but uh, like you're saying, it shows most thoroughly with the Alchemist because there's not much stretch there. Yeah, there's not much of a stretch there. There's not much to the to, to decipher when the the play's literally titled The Alchemist. Exactly. Uh, shortly before Ben Johnson's birth, his father unfortunately passed away. And his mother remarried soon after his birth to a bricklayer. He's got some uh, similarities there, I would uh, assume, with uh, masonry, which uh, and the actual job would be the the working with stones. So. Yeah, exactly. Back then, uh, the common terminology for this would be like a stonemason. Yep. Uh, Johnson was raised in Westminster and attended St. Martin's Parish School in Westminster School. He left the Westminster School in 1589 and worked briefly in his stepfather's trade as a bricklayer. Yeah. He, 
then continued to serve in the, in the military at Flanders before choosing a permanent career working as an actor and playwright for Philip Henslow's Theater. Yeah, and then like we were saying, he would also work for uh, work for Shakespeare, and uh, he'd really develop himself as an actor and a playwright. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to say work for. I mean, yes, when starting out, I'm sure he did a lot of work under Shakespeare himself. But uh, as the relationship grew, I believe the connection was very mutual. Mm, hopefully, that's what uh, my connection with uh, John Chatterton becomes. <laughs> hopefully. But uh, your connection with him is pretty strong already. Yeah. See? There. I'm Ben Johnson of Treasure Hunting in Florida. And uh, in 1598, Johnson wrote what is considered his first great play, Every Man in His Humor. And in this production, uh, like we were saying, this is where his connection with William Shakespeare really started to started to grow, as William Shakespeare acted in one of the lead roles. Wow. So actually, Shakespeare was an actor under Johnson in this case? Yeah, Johnson was the director of this play, and uh, Shakespeare worked for him. Well, not for him, but... Yeah, yeah, as one of the actors. Influence. Yeah. And uh, strangely enough, uh, soon after this play was released, Johnson continued to murder Gabriel Spencer <laughs> in a dreadful 16th century-style duel and faced a murder trial. But due to his skillful diplomacy, he was able to convince the court to spare him, and he only served a few weeks in prison. Jeez. Freaking, uh, freaking killed a guy, and still he's known known as one of the one of the greatest playwrights and actors of his age. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I, I had to do some digging to find this uh, this fact, but yeah, it turns out he uh, killed him, uh, but he didn't speci uh, specify what weapon he used. But uh, according to the the time, era, I was assuming was probably probable. swords. Yeah, probable that it was a. a uh, a sword, but guns did exist back then, so it could have possibly been like a caliber, or maybe like a musket, but it's not very likely. Yeah, I think it was probably a sword fight. But could you imagine like going to court for murder and only serving a few weeks in prison? That shows your your great public speaking skills there. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing. It's like, yeah, you know, I killed a guy, but it's fine. He, he didn't matter that much, anyways. Yeah, times are different back then. If you kill someone, actually, maybe they're not so different. <laughs> <laughs> ben Johnson loved to write and create plays solely for the purpose of entertain entertainment and did not look to hide meaning, or so he often said. Yeah. But when you begin to analyze his plays, it's clear that there's a secret meaning behind the <clears throat> joyous characters, witty humor, and arrangement of words in his texts. He's remembered for having worked with Shakespeare himself, but as a theory girl, maybe did a lot more than just work with Shakespeare. Hopefully not what I'm thinking of. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but yeah, really, there is a there is a possibility here that uh, this theory that historians and uh, theorists have developed may be, may be possible. And uh, you never know. Really, uh, we've discovered things along the way that have really surprised historians and really showed stuff that's been contrary to popular belief and popular uh, our, our popular image of what history is. So it's it's definitely possible that Ben Johnson could have hid these secret codes and stuff with uh, this group of men, and that they all got together and they uh, they were uh, either uh, influencing Shakespeare or maybe actually were Shakespeare themselves. You never know. This uh, the theory is very interesting, and uh, I'm I don't sub subscribe to it uh, just because I I want to see a little bit more facts for it. But it's definitely uh, it's definitely intriguing. 
I, 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 I'm not to say that Shakespeare uh, doesn't exist. The theory would, might go so far as to say so, but what we're what we're mostly going to go over is the possibility that Shakespeare didn't write his own works because there's a lot more evidence behind that than there is that Shakespeare doesn't exist at all. But we will cover that theory as well. Yeah, I think he. he I think he definitely was a real man. Uh, history has shown that, but. It, it could be very possible that he was influenced by this group of men or that these men actually helped him and work and writing these uh, and writing these plays and hid clues and stuff within them. Yeah. Uh, and back into Ben Johnson, uh, as his uh, playwright career grew, he uh, found himself working under King James and uh, Johnson received royal favor and patronage. And over the next few years, he would write many of his most famous satirical plays, including Valpone in 1606, The Alchemist in 1610, and uh, Every Man in and Out of and, and Every Man Out of His Humor in 1616. Like we we're saying, his first most famous play was Shakespeare. Yeah. And he was granted a substantial pension of 100 marks a year, and is often identified as England's first poet laureate. Hundred uh a hundred marks. Do you know how much that was, roughly? Uh a substantial amount back then. Uh hundred marks. It's probably like thousands, maybe even millions in today's money. But yeah, I, I don't know say. the exact uh, I don't know the exact uh, translation. Yeah, I was gonna say that has to be a lot of money because uh he really really established himself as a as a playwright and uh Really, his works even uh, under under King J- King James, like we were talking about. Uh, even Bacon had connections with King James. Uh, this really showed how uh, how well established and how great these people actually were able to build themselves and who they were able to become. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, all these uh, you're starting to see the connection there that all of them were working under King James himself. Yeah, and it really shows their uh, political influence as well. Yeah, that's obviously got to be really high political influence if they're able to do stuff with the king. Uh-huh. And uh, this uh, this place of political influence uh, really gives them influence secretly as well, uh, as which Ben Johnson was affiliated with the Rosicrucians, if not already a member. And this would explain the hidden meaning behind his writings. And due to his affiliation with the society, he's most likely sworn to secrecy. Although through these messages, their influence is revealed. Yeah, the, there's a there's a whole thing with Peter Amundsen. Uh, ben Johnson wrote the the introduction to the the first folio, and uh, supposedly Ben Johnson himself, who if uh, if he had connections with the Rosicrucians, as uh, some of these historical theorists believe, he actually hit a message that uh, referenced Bacon and Neville as the two authors of uh, Shakespeare's actual works. So uh, he he definitely had his place as a as a Rosicrucian, or um, at, at least as we believe we could uh, we could be wrong, but it prove uh, it w- it would prove intriguing if he was a Rosicrucian as well, along with Sir Francis Bacon. I mean, the connection is definitely evident to uh, support this idea. Yeah, but unfortunately, uh, twenty prosperous years of entertainment. He died in his hometown of Westminster on August eighth, sixteen thirty-seven. He is regarded as one of the most uh, as one of the major dramatists and poets of the seventeenth century. Now, uh, now Johnson didn't die from uh, experimenting with cold and dead chickens, right? <laughs> I believe he died of uh, natural causes. 
at the okay. age of 60. I mean, natural causes probably being uh, a disease of some sorts, but they were not able to uh, diagnose him with anything. So he was diagnosed with dying of natural causes. The age expectancy, he definitely lived past age expectancy in this era, living a, a major 61 years. Is my math right? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. you said he was born in 1572 and then died in 1637. So yeah. he, he had a good life. That's, yeah, that's pretty well decent. The, the age expectancy there, probably around like 40 years if you're lucky. I don't know if I'll live that long. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he definitely died of... Uh, oh, it's, possible, it's most likely they died of natural causes due to his old age. There you, there you go. So he's not like uh, he's not like Bacon who died from uh, experimenting with a chicken. <laughs> no, he's not like Bacon. <laughs> that is uh, yeah. not funny. All right, let's get into our our last famous person, who is Henry Neville, who was uh, also very influential during this period of uh, during this period of great writers in the Elizabethan era. So I actually don't know that much about Henry Neville. I do know that he was a very influential writer and author and a playwright during uh, during this period of Elizabethan authors. But other than that, I really don't know much about him. So uh, Ian's going to tell us who Neville was and uh, some of the stuff that he did. Uh, indeed, he, indeed, he was a very important author. And uh, he did play a big role in this theory as well. And uh, let's get into some of his background. Uh, Sir Henry Neville, uh, cor uh, courtier and diplomat, Dipl diplomat, uh, was born on 1564 and grew up at Billingbear House in Berkshire. Henry enrolled at Merton College, Oxford on, 20th on the 20th of December, 1577, and on the 30th of August in 1605. He received his master's degree in arts during his young adulthood. Neville lived at the old Archbishop's Palace at Mayfield, inherited by his parents from his mother's cousin. There, he carried on the, on the business of an iron founder at the May famous Mayfield Furnace when he was first introduced by court at court by William Cecil, Lord Berkeley. Mm. Okay, so was it actually called Master Degree back then, or was that his Master's Degree? Because that, that linguistics part about history is really interesting, too, how that's changed over time, if, that was a, if it was Mastery instead of what it is that a Master's Degree. Uh, I believe... The technical term back then was master, so yeah, uh, I believe not too much of a change there, but uh, yeah, definitely a little different though. And then he was actually an iron worker before he started doing, before he started writing? Yeah, that was his uh, family business. Now, I, I, that's the theme I see through all these authors is they really had this connection to the family business, but they, they did their own stuff and wrote these amazing works. Yeah. So before he, before he became this huge, uh, diplomat and po political influencer, he was just a common iron founder back then. Well, and I think that's the, that's really how life during this period worked too was uh, if you weren't going to go on and do something else and be extraordinary in something else really just followed in the, the family business and you really just did that stuff. But you know, what isn't very humble from his background is the Archbishop's palace that he grew up in. Yeah, right. <laughs> they, they didn't even own it. The, his parents didn't even purchase it themselves. They just inherited it from their mother's, from his mother's cousin. Must be nice. 
I know, just to get to live in this palace because you're related to someone. Jeez. <laughs> and that's some that's that's uh that's contrary to what we saw uh with Sir Francis Bacon who received no financial support. Yeah, he really built that up himself. Yeah. But Sir Henry Neville uh grew up in a palace, so I wonder what that would have been like. Pretty amazing, I'm sure. Throughout his life, Henry sat in Parliament, being the member for New Windsor. In 1592, he managed to obtain a five-year monopoly for the export of cast-iron cannon from England, thus producing more guns than anyone else in the country. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so That's a ton really, of iron cannons. Yeah, his, his wealth really exploded in this in this in uh, these five years. So even before he started writing stuff, he already had a, had a wealth behind him. Yeah, he was very uh, influential before he even started. Uh, before he even started his writing's major works. Although, unfortunately, the following year, fifteen ninety three, Neville's father died, and he succeeded. And he succeeded to the family estates. But when his trading monopoly ended, he sold Mayfield in order to consolidate his position in Berkshire, closer to the royal court. He had already been put in charge of royal lands. And- in, the, in that county in 1593 as steward of Donington Castle and the old bishop's palace at Sonning, Sonning where he had uh, been appointed as sheriff in 1595 and deputy lieutenant in 1596. Sheriff, deputy lieutenant, steward. That's a ton of different titles there already. This man was uh, yeah. really, even before he wrote stuff, even if he didn't write stuff, he still had a, had an amazing career. And actually, I believe this is... Uh, he believes, I believe he was still writing throughout these years, but uh, his, his really famous writing didn't come until about a couple years later. But yeah, as you can see in these in these uh, three in these three years, he was able to obtain so many titles and influences, and really just dominating the political uh, political scene. Oh yeah, and that's and that's another thing. Um... Ben Johnson and Bacon pretty much did the, the same thing. And uh, with all these political connections, I'm sure it really helped the, the authors as well in uh, getting some of their works noticed. Exactly. And uh, in 1599, Henry Neville was knighted and sent to ambassador to France. His short embassy was dominated by complaints about French attacks on English ships and the debts owed to England as a result of help given during the wars of the Catholic League. But in February 1600, he asked to be recalled from ambassador. Uh, Sir Henry returned to England in time to become embroiled in Essex plot against the government. Consequently, when the rebellion failed, he was arrested aboard his ship at Dover and imprisoned, briefly in Chelsea uh, and then in the Tower of London. He was brought before the Royal Council on 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 July 8th, dismissed from his position and heavily fined. Uh, but upon King James' ascension, he was released by royal warrant on uh, April 10, 1603. And uh, Ben Johnson actually alludes to Neville's situation being uh, cap- uh, captured by uh, being being pris- imprisoned by the royal court and uh, in one of his epigrams, displaying their connections with one another. Yeah, so it really the theory that these people have developed wouldn't be able to be possible if these people didn't have these connections. And this is how we see Ben Johnson and Harry Neville as being connected in this interaction that they had. I'm sure, obviously, Ben Johnson knew that Neville was in prison. So if anything else, that shows that he knew he existed. If not, 
had close acquaintance with him. Yeah, and they both worked under uh, King James, so there's even more connection there. Yeah, I'm sure that's definitely possible because you said Bacon, um, Neville, and Johnson all did work for King James. So that's a profound connection right there in itself. Yeah, and uh, possibly even a theory for his own. Maybe their, uh, their connection with King James uh, also led to their connection with the Russian Christians as well. Conspiring with the king. <laughs> but yeah, the, sorry. No, that's fine. But yeah, King. Uh, uh, because of his connection with King James, he was released by royal warrant. So his uh, his, his political uh, influence with his political connection with King James really helped him uh, helped him out after being imprisoned. Jeez, Johnson and Neville both spent time in jail. <laughs> After trying to usurp the government, you wouldn't think the king would be so kind. <laughs> but uh, throughout his political career, he also wrote many works, even possibly Shakespeare's own plays, which we'll get more into later. There's that connection. And uh, under King James, Sir Henry played a more prominent role in politics. Neville became highly interested in commercial affairs as well, integrating himself with the monarch alongside Ben Johnson. But unfortunately... Uh, he died soon after, on July 10th, 1615. So, when, I'm trying to figure out his lifespan. He died 1615. He was born 1564, so... So about... Uh, 50? 60 years? 50... Yeah, about 51 years, I believe. So, do you think that was pretty average back then? That seems decent. I be, yeah, seems like a decent it's also age. above average, I believe, or at least uh, pretty close to it. All these, uh, all these uh, political influencers really had decent lifespans. Yeah, and it, it's kind of hard to tell because obviously lifespan changes throughout history. But yeah, that definitely seems for back then uh, to be a pretty decent lifespan. And uh, I'm sure their wealth also contributed to that. Yeah, they probably had access to better medicine and medical techniques. Yeah, and were just healthier and in better living conditions as well. Right. If you're growing up in a mansion, uh, you're not really going to starve. <laughs> yeah, and you're not going to be coming into contact with too many diseases if you're eating the most fine meats and cheeses. Right. <laughs> Must be nice. But uh, that's uh, that's Henry Neville's life story. All right, and that's pretty much uh, all the authors and all the people that are connected with this conspiracy. So now we get to talk about a subject that I'm more familiar with: the Rosicrucians. Yeah, and uh, uh, this is where it gets the, intriguing. Yeah, where all the authors connect connect into one uh, secret society. I guess we'll get into it. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but we'll be right back shortly after a short message from our sponsors. All right, welcome back, everybody. Sorry about that short ad break, but now let's get into the Rosicrucians. So the Rosicrucians is where I really get to shine, and uh, it's really the stuff that I I know a lot more about. And uh, they're a really interesting order. So let's get into it. Rosicrucianism was really a spiritual and a cultural movement that arose in Europe in the early 17th century. 
I know this was really after the publication of three texts known as the Fama Fraternitas, the Confessio, and the Alchemical Marriage. The order was purported to be a hitherto unknown Zoderic order that many sought after because of its, uh, its seeking of knowledge being attractive to many. So, um, what exactly were their ideals, the Rosicrucians? The Rosicrucians were uh, really based off the teachings, and uh, we'll talk about them later, of uh, Father R.C., who was uh, Rose Croy. Or Christian Rosencruz. That was his That was his name, sorry. They were really based off his teachings, and uh, he spent a lot of time in, uh, in the Middle East under various masters who were practicing Sufism. And uh, which is pretty much just mystical Islam. And uh, he really spread his knowledge to prominent European scientists and philosophers. And uh, he started making this group of small, this small group of disciples. And uh, that's really how the Rosicrucian order was founded. It was really based on these teachings of Father Christian Rosengrutz. Uh Would you like to, uh, you mentioned the Fama Fraternitas. So what exactly uh, was that? Yeah. I'll get into those, but before we get into the the Fama Fraternitas, I do want to get into the the Confessio because uh, the Confessio really revealed the true philosophy of of the Rosicrucian ideals, and uh, this was completed by the Fama Fraternitas, who we talked about, and uh, the Fama Fraternitas really uh, really justified and defended the the confessio from voices of accusation so after christian rosenkreutz had spent all this time in the middle east he he learned all the stuff from uh sufism and mystical islam and uh, he really spent a lot of time in the middle east where he learned all this stuff and all that stuff that he was learned was written down in the confessio and a lot of people started rejecting the teachings of the confessio and didn't believe that the the journey was real or what he learned was real and so the fama fraternitas Fama Fraternitas came in and it really confirmed that. And then it added on and explained more of the true philosophy of Rosicrucianism and uh, as we know it today. So uh, do you know why exactly he was uh, disbelieved uh, prior to the Fama, Fama Fraternitas? Well, because the, the teachings of the Confessio were really contradictory to uh, definitely popular uh, popular church belief because this was this had heavy influences in what's known as Zadar Christianity and Sufism, which was mystical Christian or I'm sorry, mystical Islam. And so all the mysticism and the esotericism was really, really frowned upon during this time. And that's why a lot of the leaders of this order, like Sir Francis Bacon, who was who was one of the most notable leaders. They really had to had to hide their role with it because uh, it seemed like a, such a crazy thing to believe in. Well, that's really uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So the Confessio pretty much explores the true knowledge, and uh, it, somebody actually quoted saying that we are earnest to attain to the understanding and knowledge of philosophy. So they really. Th- sought after the the knowledge and philosophy that was brought through the study of esotericism and uh, mysticism. And that's really what this order came to be based on. And particularly, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, hermetic hermetic alchemy, or based off the teachings of Hermes Trimagestus, who was uh, one of the famous gods of Egypt. And uh, it was this figure that was really seen as the founder of 
founder of alchemy and uh, some alchemists actually believed him to be a real person that was based off of hermes from the hermes from the the greek legend and greek mythology um thoth from Egypt and Egyptian mythology, and really all these classical gods of wisdom were blended into this person of Hermes Trismegistus, And he founded the, really, alchemy as we know it, because alchemy in itself is a reference to, uh, is a reference to Egypt, because alchem, or that, that prof, or sorry, that suffix at the end, that chem, uh, chem actually translated to the land of Egypt. So it was pretty much like the science of Egypt, or the, alchemy and the as we know it which uh thought sought after to turn base metals and in, into gold and transmutation and all these interesting acts that really uh was the foundation for modern science as we know it. wow so uh, alchemy really developed in egypt yeah that's really where its origins were and so this Middle Eastern trip that Christian Rosencruz took to study Sufism, uh, mystical Islam, uh, was heavily also influenced by uh, alchemy as it was founded in Egypt. And then uh, finally, I explained their belief in Azadar Christianity, which was also very important. And this was as being to addict ourselves to the true philosophy and to lead a Christian life. So they took all of these ancient practices and all of this blending of mythology, and they put it together with a, a strong Christian lifestyle, but not Christianity as you'll you'll see in church services, but this different form of Christianity, this esoteric form of Christianity, which they believed was the true philosophy. And uh, it was immensely popular during this time. And uh, even though some people criticized it, uh, some of its members may have even been famous authors like uh, Sir Francis Bacon, who was actually, we know for sure, one of the Rosicrucian leaders, maybe even Ben Johnson and Henry Neville. Maybe they were all connected to this order, and they tried to explain the Rosicrucian teachings through these codes hidden in Shakespeare's manuscripts. Oh, so it's, uh, it's cool that we start to see those connections there. Yeah, and the connections are really profound. If they end up being true, it would really rewrite modern history as we know it. So we talked about the, the Confessio, and we talked about the Fama Fraternitas, but I want to talk about the, the alchemical wedding of Father R.C. or Rosencruz, because uh, this was an allegorical an allegorical romance that was divided into seven days or seven journeys, and it really recounted how uh, Christian Rosencruz supposedly got an invite to go to this wonderful castle in order to assist the chemical wedding of the king and queen who were the the husband and the wife and uh there's supposedly secret teachings hidden within this because a lot of the story elements are really a a source of inspiration for uh, for alchemists and poets and dreamers and uh, maybe this hidden ritual that way that were in it and revealed these processes of, of testing and purifications and death and resurrection and ascension and uh, it really was a it was a really profound book and it's the last book of the, the rosicrucian manifestos and rightfully so because it was a very profound book for its time and uh people people almost knew after they read it that there was something hidden within it because the writing was so odd and i've actually i've read it myself and uh, it, it's really it i'll, I'll say trippy 
because it, that's really the best way to describe it. It's when you read it, it doesn't make sense. And it almost doesn't make sense for a reason because it's trying to purposely hide something. Well, it's almost like the regular writing itself doesn't make sense. So it's, it's prompting you to decipher it. Yeah, it's all these symbols and codes and secret writings and stuff that really had a, a had an interesting relation in this period because codes and these secret maps and all this stuff were used by everybody. The kings, the queens, uh, the common people use some codes, and uh, these authors use codes, and uh, it really became a fad during this era. So this was definitely one of the most famous famous examples of of that. So this, uh, these symbols, does anyone uh, particularly decipher them? Um, or is it still, uh, still uh, being deciphered to this day? Yeah, we believe that we know some of the origins of these symbols. Like the Rose Croix refers to uh, the, the cross with the rose on it. The, the rose was a symbol of beauty and, uh, and rebirth. And then the cross symbol was a, a similar symbol. So we, we assume that it's suggesting some kind of uh, maybe spiritual spiritual rebirth or the, the opening of the eyes or rediscovering lost knowledge that was lost. And that's really what the Rosicrucians taught was this lost knowledge that they that Christian Rosencruz had gained from his trip to from his trip to the Middle East. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting to uh, to think about. Yeah, so the Rosicrucians played a played a heavy influence during this time, and they were re really up there with the the societies that have developed throughout history, the fraternities, like the the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, the, the Bavarian Illuminati, and I I hate saying that term because it's so popularized now and so many people make so many conspiracy theories about it but the bavarian illuminati was a real organization just not the one that we think of that's going to try to take over the world yeah. the uh, illuminati was very much uh the bavarian illuminati was very much a real thing and uh and i uh, think so i yeah you can go sorry I was just gonna say that it's very common to see these conspiracy theories regarding the Illuminati today, but a lot of like like we were saying, every conspiracy is based off that some fact. Yeah, it's just blown out of proportion to the to the point where you gotta go back and try to rediscover the actual origins and the actual facts behind it. Exactly. Because, uh, like you were saying, the Bavarian Illuminati was actually a, a very real organization, and I think I'd actually like to do an episode on them. And I'd like to, I would love to just debunk that myth and just destroy the conspiracy theories out there about the Illuminati. Because the Illuminati were a real group, but no, they were not trying to take over the world. <laughs> they were dedicated to, a, dedicated to a spiritual enlightenment, which is a very similar idea in the Rosicrucian beliefs. All right, so... Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. You can go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, in 1616, Johann Valentin André designated the order as ludicrous or a fun trick, but some scholars suggest he made the statement only to shield himself from the wrath of the religious and political institutions of the day who despised esotericism and the idea of uni universal reformation. 
brought about by its abstract science and for which the manifesto is called for. So like we were talking about, these Rosicrucians, they, they called for this universal reformation. They called for the enlightenment of, of science and actual methods to discovering how things work and uh, alchemy and using alchemy to discover how chemicals mix together and do different things. But obviously the church didn't like that back then because it's had its preset teachings on uh, how everything worked. They said, nope, it's fine. It's God. Nothing else matters. But the scientists who stood up to the Catholic church at the time really made our world into, into what it is today. And don't get me wrong. I'm a Christian, so the church definitely has its place because uh, religion is just as important as science. One is not more important than the other, and so that's why the Catholic Church was in the wrong during this period, and that's why this universal reformation called by the Rosicrucians, even though it's designated as ludicrous, really made the world into what was what we know today. And yeah, the Catholic Church was really just a different scene back then. It it, would, it had so much more power than it would today. It was almost as if the Catholic Church was its own sort of government back then, with having their own punishments and their own. Uh, their own sort of law. Well, it actually still is today. Uh, the The Vatican's actually considered its own country. Yeah, but not as not as uh, of course, but not as widely, it wasn't as uh, corrupt as it was yeah. back then, and not as largely influential. Yeah. All right, so let's get into another thing by uh, a Rosicrucian author named Michael Myers, because uh, he described Rosicrucianism as having arisen from the primordial tradition and stated that our origins are Egyptian, Romanic, derived from mysteries of Eleusis, and some are, oh God, sorry, Sam Othrace, and uh, the Magi of Persia, and the Pythagoreans, and the Arabs. With the promise of spiritual transformation, the order influenced many figures to seek esoteric knowledge. And we we're kind of talking about that earlier. But this uh, this showed the origins. The, the Rosicrucian author, Michael Meyer, really explained uh, these teachings as uh, they were often confused about the Rosicrucians back then, really what they were based off of. But he tells us that they were Egyptian, Brahmaic, uh, based off the illusion mysteries, which were uh, oracles that were given in Greece, and uh, the Magi of Persia, and the Pythagoreans, which were also Greek, and uh, the Arabs, which makes sense because uh, Christian Rosencrantz went to study Sufism in the Middle East. So uh, they really combined all of these traditions, and they really started forming modern science as we know it from the traditions and the thousands of years of human history and experimentation that all these ancient civilizations had already done. So, wow, yeah, it's uh, the development in this uh, this era is very, uh, very, very, very evident. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'll talk about some of the people that influenced. Uh, these really influenced occult philosophers like Michael Myers, who we talked about earlier, Robert Flood, and Thomas Vaughan. But the Rosicrucians were also very influential during the founding of Freemasonry in Scotland. And uh, we'll do a Freemasons episode, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. And uh, they were the largest and most influential of these societies. And uh, they influenced the, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn which consisted of several well-known members from the Rosicrucian Society. And then uh, even today, the Rosicrucian order kind of lives on in what's known as uh, the AMORC, or the Ancient and Mystical Order of the Rosicrucians. 
which became a really an international organization involved in several educational and cultural activities worldwide, explaining some of the Rosicrucian teachings and this uh, this call for spiritual and enlightenmental and scientific rebirth. Wow, I didn't. I did not. Uh, I wasn't aware that uh, the Rosicrucian order still lives on to, to even to this day. It's very much uh, an, an offshoot of what the Rosicrucian order was, but yes, in a, in a technical sense, it really does live on today. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, they had a profound impact during this era. And uh, you, have, you have to remember that around the same time, the scientific revolution was going on, the Enlightenment was going on. And so the Rosicrucians really took those ideas and pounded them into the sand and really started experimenting with them using alchemy and all these traditions from these ancient civilizations. And they really played such a huge role during this time. So it's really not a far-fetched belief that uh, Johnson, Neville, and Bacon could have actually been involved with this order. Yeah, and, and their involvement, it's not too hard, too much of a stretch to even go and say that they uh, wrote Shakespeare's own works. Yeah, and we'll get into that. We'll get into the conspiracy right now. All right, guys, uh, sadly, we're running low on time, and we're actually going to have to wrap this up. So next time, we'll actually get into the whole conspiracy and the whole theory behind this intriguing uh intriguing connection that made prove that shakespeare is really not the person who we thought he was so we'll wrap this up again like i said and then next week we'll have another episode on historical subject and uh actually after this one we're going to put up a behind the scenes episode and it will be our first behind the scenes where we're gonna just talk we're not going to have any script we're not going to have anything planned we're just going to do do some good old talk about history and the uh, you know, do some good old talking about our lives and everything that's going on with uh, coronavirus because that's going to play a huge part in history, as uh, as we can already tell. So stay tuned for that one as well. That one's going to be a little bit more relaxed. I'm trying to put in some, uh, put in a little bit more relaxed stuff so the podcast is not just uh, not just us talking about stuff the whole time, but uh, actually us sharing our some of our views and stuff on these interesting subjects with you and uh, getting some of your some of your viewpoints on it. Do you have anything, Ian? Uh, yeah, but yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, to the behind the scenes because, uh, it'll appear to appeal to a wider audience and, yeah. uh, maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be entertaining. I hope you guys will enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. Then that's, that's pretty much our goal. We want something entertaining and, uh, we want informative and entertainment. So, these these episodes about the history, I love them because I'm such a history nerd. But uh, I realize that some of you guys maybe just want something a little bit uh, a little bit calmer and a little bit stress stressful. I say stressful. I don't think these are stressful, but oh, something laid back, and that's what we're gonna do with behind the scenes stuff. So, for uh, before we wrap up, I'd. Uh, like to give a shout out to Anchor again as our podcasting service. That's been a really a miracle in making these episodes. And uh, besides a few minor problems here and there, it's been pretty good. And uh, we really couldn't have filmed the uh, really couldn't have filmed the podcast without it. So uh, if you guys have ever wanted to make your own podcast or ever had any had any interest in uh, in, in podcasting, this is a great service to do that. And I really high, highly recommend it. 
And then uh, more importantly, I'd like to continue to give a shout out to you guys as you continue supporting the Facebook page and the community that we're growing on there. I've shared some uh, shared some interesting links and uh, our episodes and some pictures and uh, your comments and your your feedback have been uh, really fun to read. And uh, I I love to see the engagement with the podcast on there. So I thank you guys for for your support on that. And then uh, if Ian doesn't have anything else to say, uh, we'll wrap this up. Uh, Just uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. All right. All this being said, thanks, guys, and have a nice week. This is Jacob. Ian. All right. And Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem.